Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Podcast. Located in the heart of Victoria, BC, we are a church that seeks to renew our community through the gospel. For more information, visit centralbaptistchurch.ca. The scripture reading is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 15, and Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 6 to 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, and then 6 to 10. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. This is the word of the Lord. It's what we want. Uh, It's what we need. Uh, that peace that passes all understanding, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And to be clear, Christianity does not promise this peace that passes all understanding in kind of a Zen Buddhism type thinking where somehow if we pray right or if we have faith enough or something, we will get into this state of mind where we will rise above all our troubles and we will just be able to be above them all and they will not touch us. That's not the kind of peace that Christianity promises, it's far more realistic. Because I don't know about you, I've never seen that kind of peace in my life, where somehow can rise above everything and nothing touches me. That's, it's not realistic. The peace that Christianity does promise, however, is a peace in the middle of all the trials, the middle of all the difficulties, a peace that passes all understanding when you're in it, and it's raw, and it's difficult, Kind of like I think even the moment we're in right now, even as we're thinking of Jimmy and Yumi and their family. So the question then becomes, where do we get this kind of inner peace, this peace that passes all understanding that will enable us to stand even in the midst of the most extreme and difficult circumstances? Because if we can find out what can work in the most extreme moments, then surely we can figure out how to work in the smaller ones. For instance... There was once a Roman emperor named Licinius, and Licinius demanded that all of the soldiers under his command sacrifice to the Roman gods to affirm that they're honoring them. This is in the first few centuries of the Christian church. 
There were 40 Christian men in the ranks of his army who refused to do this because that would be to go against their God, Jesus Christ. And so they refused to make the sacrifices to the gods. And as a result, their general had them whipped, torn with hooks, and then imprisoned in, in chains. When they still refused to sacrifice, the general ordered that these men be stripped of their clothing and left out in the middle of the ice on a frozen nearby lake. To add to the torment, these uh, soldiers then took uh, large baths of hot water and placed them around uh, the edge of the lake. And all these 40 Christian men had to do was to walk off the lake, sacrifice to the gods, and they could get into a nice warm bath. At one point in the middle of the night, the chant got taken up by these 40 soldiers. They started chanting, 40 good soldiers for Christ. 40 good soldiers for Christ. And then in the middle of the night, as the guards were sitting around a fire, one of the soldiers naked came off of the lake and did sacrifice to the gods. One of the guards who was watching this presumably had had conversations with these Christian men in advance of this, and the whole entire scenario just convicted him of his need for Christ, and he was converted on the spot. And so he took his clothes off, knowing this is what he had to do, and went out into the middle of the lake to join the 39 that were out there. And so the cry came up on the lake that was originally had gone down to 39 good soldiers for Christ now began again, 40 good soldiers for Christ. And the next day, all 40 were dead. Where do some Christians and all Christians potentially get this kind of inner peace that would enable us to stand firm in the middle of the realistic and difficult trials of life, even in these extreme circumstances such as these 40 good soldiers for Christ. I want to know how they do it because I'm not in the middle of a frozen lake, but I got plenty of things where I could use that kind of inner peace, that peace that passes all understanding, and I trust that you do as well. Even, of course, as we are thinking about Yumi and the boys, as we are thinking about Jimmy, how can they get this in this moment? And we're praying that for them. And I'm going to, toward the end, um, share some words uh, from Yumi talking exactly about this. And I'm probably going to get emotional. <laughs> this inner peace is what everybody in our society wants. Why do people do meditation? Why do people go to yoga? Why do people go to counseling? Why do people read endless self-help books? It's because every single one of us <clears throat> want some sort of inner peace that will enable us to deal with the so many difficulties and trials that we face in life that just seem to overwhelm us. We all want this inner peace that will be able to sustain us during these times. And the good news of Ephesians, the whole book of Ephesians, and as we come towards chapter 6, is that when a person comes to Christ, they are given the resources within their relationship with Christ in order to have this inner peace. So Ephesians 1 to 3 is all about how to come to Christ, what it means to become a Christian. Then chapters 4 to 6 is what it means to live as a Christian. And specifically in our series on the armor of God now, this morning, we're going to talk about 
about this inner peace that we all want, that we all long for. And what Paul is saying is, look, if you've come to Christ, in one sense you've already got it, but you need to learn how to, in his words, put it on. Like armor, you need to put it on. You already possess it. You, you can have access to it, but you've got to learn how to put it on day by day. And that's what this whole series has been about and what it continues to be about. Really, the armor of God is learning how to put on the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so we turn today to look at the third piece of armor. And here's what we read in verse 14 and 15. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and now today, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now I remind you again that within our context, Paul has been saying, he's been explaining one reason why life can be so hard for us. And there's many reasons, this is not the only one, but one of the key reasons is that there is an unseen realm, and in this unseen realm there are dark, evil, spiritual powers that are out to get us, that attack us, especially once we give our lives to Christ. And so what Paul is doing in Ephesians 6 is he's saying, look, you can stand firm against this, in this battle. You don't have to be beaten down by these powers. You have all the resources you need in order to stand against these unseen forces. And so what he's been describing for us is a fully armed Roman soldier, a fully armed one. And today he's going to emphasize the need for us, metaphorically speaking then, to arm our feet. We've talked about the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth. Today now we've got to talk about the sandals or the shoes that we need to arm our feet with. Now, that might kind of seem strange to you uh, because in our day, shoes really only are for the purpose of function or of fashion. Uh, that's really the only reason we use shoes. Uh, well, I suppose uh, some other reasons too, but certainly not in the sense we talk about here. For a soldier, though, proper footwear is absolutely essential. A shoe or a sandal for a Roman soldier had at least three purposes. Here they are. The first function of a Roman sandal, a soldier sandal, was it had to have traction. It had to have traction. So in our day, think of soccer cleats, for instance. When uh, uh, we were, our kids were going to the PFC game, my son plays soccer, they don't just wear running shoes when you're on the, the soccer pitch. They have cleats. And what is the purpose of a cleat? A cleat is to make sure that you don't slip, Right? Roman soldiers had cleats. They were hobnails, little nails that went down on the bottom of the, the sandal, and so then you wouldn't be able to slip. So here's a picture of what a Roman sandal looks like. And you see all the little hobnails that are in there. Basically, they're cleats uh, that the soldiers had. And the obvious purpose of cleats in a soccer game is so that you don't slip, because if you slip, your opponent will go by you, and they'll score a goal, and you'll lose the game. On the battlefield, if you slip... Your opponent will drive his sword through your stomach, and you'll really lose the game. So you need to have sandals that have traction so you're not going to slip and fall. Absolutely essential on the field of battle. Secondly, sandals had to protect the foot. In modern warfare, we know that uh, one tactic is to put landmines where, where uh, soldiers might be going, and so obviously if they step on them, uh, that's how you can kill your enemy. In ancient times, there was a, a tactic like this, not as uh, 
powerful as a landmine, but what they would do is they would go through where an army might be marching and they would embed little spikes into the ground so that if his army was walking there, if they oftentimes in hotter cultures, they're wearing very thin uh, shoes or maybe they might even be barefoot. And so if you're marching along and all of a sudden you step on a little spike, you've done this before, you know, stepped on a nail or something like that. Isn't it incredible how if you step on a, just a little nail or a sliver or something, that tiny little wound, especially if it gets infected, I mean, you're out. That's all it takes is a tiny little spike in the bottom of your foot and you're done. So it was a strategy by the enemy to always put these little spikes in the ground. And so the Romans, in order to be able to face all of this, made sure that their sandals had a thick tread on them. Very important. Put a thick tread on it so even if you do step on something, it's not going to be able to go through. It'll protect your foot. And then finally, sandals had to provide mobility. Mobility, light shoes, sandals, make a soldier so they're quick, they're agile, they can move quickly in battle. Of course, a slow soldier is a dead soldier. And we all know the great story of Alexander the Great who conquered the world with absolute speed. The reason he could do that was in part because he could march his armies faster than anyone else. On the battlefield, his, his soldiers were faster than anyone else. And one reason for that was the lightness of their shoes, their sandals. They didn't wear giant clunky boots because who can march and move fast when you're wearing giant boots? So that's just the background of what a sandal is, what Paul's talking about. And now he's using this as a metaphor for us. And now we need to come to ask this question. What do the sandals represent for those who come to Christ? What are we talking about here? Well, the emphasis is on the word readiness or preparedness as we were reading earlier. Now, we've got to be clear, what is exactly Paul talking about? Because I think a lot of Christians, when they read this, they have in their minds uh, some uh, Old Testament verses where it talks about, you know, how, how precious are the feet of those who bring good news. So it's a message about sharing Christ of evangelism, we might say. And so what Paul is saying here then would be that you always need to be ready to share the good news of the gospel about how you can have peace with God. It's not wrong to say that that's what we need to do. Obviously, there's many verses that talk about that. That's not what this passage is about. And we know that because Paul's not talking about evangelism here. Paul is talking about how anyone who becomes a Christian will find themselves in a battle with the unseen spiritual realm and showing us how we stand our ground in the midst of that kind of a battle. So his subject's not evangelism. It's how we can withstand the attacks of the evil one. I mean, just look at verse 14. Stand, therefore. That's how it begins. And one way that you can stand is you need to put on the the sandals, the shoes for your feet, so you will be ready and you'll have a readiness given by the gospel of peace. So his point in this verse then is that there is a readiness, a preparedness that comes from the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that will enable you to keep your grip, to make it so that you won't slip and fall in the, in the trials and tribulations of life, a readiness from the gospel which will make you tough and protect you when you step on the many spikes that the evil one will lay in front of your path that will try to trip you up and keep you out of life, a preparedness from the gospel that will keep you agile and quick and able to outmaneuver your enemy. So I'll put it like this. The sandals represent the traction, the toughness, the agility that the gospel of peace gives, which enables us to stand firm in the trials. 
Okay, so that's all the kind of teaching background stuff. That all now then leads up to this question. How does putting on the gospel, that good news of what God has done for us in Christ, how does putting that on give us peace to stand firm in the battle? That's what we got to work on. This is the practical stuff now, right? This is where we get to why all this matters. The clue is in how Paul describes the gospel. And he calls it the gospel of peace. And I was reading uh, Tim Keller, whom I'm boring a few thoughts from today, and I thought he just put this perfectly. Uh, And it's obvious as soon as you hear it. The, The Bible, the New Testament, talks about two types of peace. There's peace with God, and there's the peace of God, or that comes from God. Peace with God, and the peace of God. Now, our culture and everybody in our world really wants what we maybe call the peace of God. That is that inner peace that would enable me to stand through all the difficult trials and tribulations of life. Everybody wants that. But the Bible is clear that a person cannot experience the peace of God until you receive peace with God. That these two things go together. And the peace with God is what leads to peace, the peace of God, or the peace that comes from God. So just think of this to make this really easy to understand. Let's say you're in conflict with somebody else. You're, you're at odds with them between you and that other person. That's a peace that, or it's a conflict that's outside of you. And what happens is it creates a lack of peace inside of you, right? You got stirred up emotions and you're thinking through all kinds of things. How are you going to get inner peace in that moment? Well, the most ideal situation is that somehow you can make peace with that person. If you can get together and you can talk things out and somehow you can work it out, if you can get peace with that person, then obviously what's going to happen is you're going to find inner peace. You're going to experience inner peace in your emotional life and in your thought life. That's how you can get it. Now, of course, in life, we can't always get that, and that's a whole different topic. But that's the ideal, is that you can gain peace with someone in order that you might experience inner emotional peace. That is what Paul is talking about here. That we get the peace with God, and it follows with inner peace. So here's the answer to the question, and I'm going to spend the rest of our time developing this and get really practical toward the end on it. Here's the way I'll put it. I know it's a longer sentence, but we're going to go over it a whole bunch. To the degree we believe and rejoice in the fact that we have peace with God, we then experience the peace of God that enables us to stand firm in the battle. So to the degree that we believe and rejoice in the fact that we have peace with God through this good news of what God has done for us in Christ, when we get that, when we believe it, when we rejoice in it, when we remind ourselves of it, then we begin to experience that inner peace of God that enables us to stand firm in the battle. Okay, so putting on the sandals of peace then means doing this. That's what I'm trying to show you this morning. This is how we get it. So let's unpack all this and really get it practical for ourselves today. So let's start out with peace with God. That need to put on, to believe, to rejoice in the peace that we have with God. To understand this rightly, We need to go back to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 is probably the greatest chapter in the Bible on this whole subject of peace with God. And the chapter actually begins by emphasizing the opposite of peace with God. That is that all of us, by nature, apart from Jesus Christ, are in conflict with God, at odds with God, 
we're not in the proper relationship with God. So we're going to read through the same passage twice. The first time we look at it, we're going to emphasize what we are apart from Jesus, and it's all not good stuff. And then we'll come back and we'll see, because of the good news of what Christ has done, we'll see the positive. Okay, so let's just read it through the first time and look at the bad stuff. For while we were still weak, there's one description of us, we're weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, there's another description of us, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, not just weak, not just sinners, under the wrath of God and the enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So the Bible actually begins by saying the reason we do not experience the peace of God, the reason why we slip and fall all the time, is because we, by nature, are at odds with God. And that language, you, you kind of might read that and you go, is that really true? Enemies of God? Doesn't that sound a little a strong? Like, I think most people would say, I'm not an enemy of God. I mean, I'm not in conflict with God. I don't hate God or anything. People just object to that. I don't think that. But just think it through for a moment. First, the Bible says it, so we got to wrestle with it. But I think our own experience tells us it's absolutely true. Think on a most basic level. The command of Jesus, our King, is for all of us to bow the knee to him, to ask his forgiveness in order that we can be forgiven of our sins. So what do you call someone when a king says, throw down your arms, stop fighting against me, ask for my pardon, and it will be given? What do you call someone who says, I refuse to do that, and I'm going to keep up my hostility toward you? I don't know what else you call that, but a king's enemy. If people just keep refusing to do what a king says, and the king keeps saying over and over, you can't do this, and they keep saying, I'm going to do this, and they keep doing it all the time, what, what do you call that? You're in conflict with the king, and so this is, the, this is our entire world, of course. And then if you want to see that hostility increase, just start using language like, we're all sinners. And people say, I'm not a sinner. I might not be perfect, but I, I'm not sure you should call me a sinner and God says, well, if you've disobeyed everything I've asked you to do, or many things I've asked you to do, what else are we supposed to call that? And then people's anger begins to grow. If you talk about sin, if you talk about judgment, especially if you talk about hell, now all of a sudden you start to see people show their true colors. I don't believe in that. I don't want to worship a God who does that. Now the hostility begins to show itself as people by their actions show that they're in conflict with God. And so the message of the Bible is every single one of us are by nature this way. None of us love our creator as we ought. None of us have lived for him the way we are supposed to. We are all in conflict with him. That's where this message begins. And this is the hard part to swallow is to realize, oh, I actually am doing that. I don't live for him. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what I command. So the proof of love is you do what he commands. But does the world around us say, Jesus, we love you so much. We, whatever you command, we will do it? Not at all. 
So the Bible begins on this bad news. Now, here's the question. What would a king do if there were people, his own subjects, presumably, who just kept defying him and defying him, refusing to bow the knee to him, continually in conflict with him? What would any king in this world do? I think he'd crush his enemies. But the good news of the Bible is that that's not the kind of king God is. The good news of the Bible is he is a king who shows mercy, a king who is patient, a king who will show forgiveness to anyone who asks. Even despite the fact of all the things we've done, he will give it. He will make peace. Though he's the one who's wronged, he takes all the steps in order to make peace. That's the kind of God that he is. So he's the God of all grace who, despite the fact that he gets wrong, despite the fact that he hasn't done anything wrong in the situation, but we have, he is the God who keeps pursuing peace and goes to the nth degree in order to achieve it with us. So how does he do this? Romans 5 makes it clear. Look at all the things he does. It's while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So the king sends his son into this world to die for those of us who were against him. Down in verse 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we cared nothing about serving him or living for him, that's when Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified, that is, he makes us right, he pardons us by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God figured out a way for us to be saved from his own judgment. This is incredible. He figures out a way for, to rescue us from his own judgment, sending his son for us so that we could be saved and we'd never have to face that. What, what kind of king does this? It's incredible. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We were enemies, God sought the way to reconcile us and make peace. This is such incredible news. And so the good news of Christianity, the good news of the gospel message is anyone who comes to this king and bows the knee, this king does not say to you, I will not make peace with you after all you've done. No, that's not what the king says. The king receives anyone who comes. So I just impress that upon each of you right now. Have you come before Jesus, your king, and said to him, Jesus, I need your pardon. Forgive me, I've not loved you. I have not obeyed you. I need pardon. Have you done that? Do not wait too long. For if you treat God as your enemy in this life, what is going to happen in the next? This offer of pardon stands open to this day at this very moment, but it will not last forever, for God is a just God, and eventually the window closes. But in this moment, the window is still open to anyone who will come to him. And so I just simply plead with you saying, really consider who you are before God. Really consider your need to have peace with God. And he has done all that is necessary to make peace with you. Do not wait, for who knows that you might die today or tomorrow and stand before him. That great message of peace stands open at this moment. 
And what Paul is saying to us today is, this good news of peace with God, when you receive this, that's the first and most important thing, is knowing that you are at peace with God. For anyone who comes to him gets justified, and as Paul said in Romans 5 verse 1, since we've been justified by his blood, we have peace with God. No longer at enmity, no more hostility, friends of God, reconciled to God. You have absolute peace for anyone who comes to him through Jesus Christ. Now, this is where this gets practical. Once you come to Christ and you make that peace with God, once that peace is made, now putting on the sandals, putting on the gospel of peace does not mean you have to get peace with God. You already have that. It's learning to take that peace with God and apply it to all the trials and tribulations that you face in this life. Because one of the evil one's most foundational strategies is to disturb that peace to put little spikes out in front of you that you'll step on so it'll disturb the peace, maybe make you think that God is not really reconciled to you, that maybe he's against you, that he's not totally in favor. Fill your heart with guilt and with anxiety. And so we need this readiness that comes from putting on the sandals of the gospel of peace so that we won't slip and we won't walk into some field of spikes and have to fall down. So come back to the main point now. Hopefully it's making a bit more sense. Here's the main point. To, de- to the degree we believe and rejoice in the fact that we have peace with God, we then experience the peace of God that enables us to stand firm in the battle. So do you see how preaching this great truth of peace with God leads us to this inner peace that we're all looking for, gives us what we're looking for? We put it maybe in the form of a story as well. Makes me think of uh, two men named John and Roger. John and Roger grew up in Los Angeles. They were friends in middle school, and their school was that kind of terrible school as you hear about, uh, where there's knife fights, fist fights, drugs are a constant problem, uh, police around the school, and all that. Roger was a very small man, uh, well, boy, in middle school, uh, lacked confidence, was picked on by everybody, and there was another older guy named Johnny. And Johnny was the kind of school bully, had a whole gang around him, and he would pick on John and Roger all the time, physically hurting them, using violence against them, you know, knocking all their books out of their hands, regularly especially would beat up Roger, physically harming him. One day in the locker room, Johnny and his gang came in, and they really laid a beating on Roger, really beat him up. And finally, Roger said, that's enough. After Johnny and the gang left, he turned to his friend John, and he said to him, I'm going to do something about this. And John said, what are you going to do? I mean, what, could you do, what can we do against Johnny and his gang? They're way too big, way too strong. And Roger said, I'm going to tell my brother Steve. His brother Steve played middle linebacker for Long Beach State. This guy was solid muscle, so you can guess where this story is going. The next day, Roger and John came, and Roger says to John, Steve's coming to school today. And so after school, they went outside, and there was a place where Johnny and his gang always hung out, and Roger walked up to that gang now, filled with quite a bit of confidence, and said, Johnny, I'd like to speak with you. So Johnny started sauntering over with his gang, and he's going to lay another beating on Roger, and as he passed the edge of the school, out stepped Steve, and he turned to his younger brother, and he said, which one? And Roger pointed at Johnny, and he said, that one. And Steve grabbed Johnny, picked him up by his shirt, and threw him over a hedge. And then he turned to all the gang, and he said, don't ever let me hear you doing anything to Roger ever again. 
You can imagine the confidence that Roger had after that. I mean, your brother, your elder brother plays middle linebacker and is that large and can take the school bully and just throw him over a hedge like that, suddenly there is a confidence, not because you're strong, but because you've got an elder brother who can take care of business for you. This is what happens when we believe in and we rejoice in the fact that through Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Because when you have peace with God, the good news, Jesus says, uh, Romans 8 says, that Jesus becomes our elder brother. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is our elder brother. In Hebrews it says, says he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. In other words, he's on our team. He'll back us up. He's not ashamed to have us part of his family, and he is the elder brother. So what will give you confidence to face all the troubles and trials and tribulations in life? It's remembering this gospel that your elder brother has first of all made peace with God so that now the elder brother is on your team. He is on your side. He is in your family, and he's the one who can take care of your enemies for you. He's the one who can enable you to get through the trials. It's not that you or I are great at all. We don't get inner peace by looking in at ourselves and saying, I am great, I am strong. You can try that for a while, but all of us will face moments where we realize I'm not as strong as I think. I'm actually really weak. Ah, but the good news is you have an elder brother who has all the strength that you need. What kept the naked 40 soldiers persevering out on the ice? They knew they had peace with God. And if you have peace with God, and Jesus, your elder brother, will cause you to rise from the dead and you'll be given eternal life to come, what's ice? What is even death? It's astounding that people can go through those things, but the only way they can get that inner peace to get through all that is there's something greater, something bigger, and it's that these men knew that they had peace with God. And again, this is not some sort of Zen Buddhism. If you just follow Jesus, he'll enable you to stand above all your trials and nothing will ever touch you. That's never the promise. The promise is you'll go through the trials. They're going to hurt. They're going to be raw. But your elder brother will carry you through and in the end will defeat all of your enemies. That's what gives you that inner peace. And that's what, according to Yumi, is giving them inner peace right now. She wrote me a little bit ago sent me a link for a song that apparently is one of Jimmy's favorite songs. You can look it up on YouTube if you'd like to. It's called Your Faithfulness by Brian Dirksen. And some of the lyrics, I'm not going to read them all, but uh, Yumi said it was very hard for her to even listen to this right now. Uh, But in her note to me, just went on to say, this is obviously very difficult. No one's downplaying that. But she feels like they're being sustained by the grace of God. They're trusting in God. And they have hope in God. So, this is, this is not some idealistic, otherworldly ideas we're talking about here. This is real life. Does it get more real? I mean, I told you a story from an emperor in Roman times. You know, you go, oh, that's old times. That's not our day. I'm talking about right now a family that's going through the worst possible imaginable thing. I'm sure maybe there's worse things, but it doesn't get much worse. When you have four children under the age of 18 and your husband is not doing well, 
And that's where she's at right now. Lots of pain and raw, and yet still communicating in that that there is an inner peace. So here's some of the lyrics of this song. I don't know if these clouds mean rain. If they do, will they pour down blessing or pain? I don't know what the future holds. Still I know I can trust your faithfulness. Surer than a mother's tender love, surer than the stars still shine above, I can rest in your faithfulness. I don't know how or when I'll die. Will it be a thief or will I have a chance to say goodbye? I don't know how much time is left, but in the end, I will know your faithfulness. When darkness When darkness overwhelms my soul, when thoughts are storm of, storms of doubt, still I trust you are always faithful, always faithful. That's real life. That's not idealism. That's not a Hallmark card with some platitude of everything's all good. It's real, raw life of somebody working out, you and me working out the peace that we have with God, the faithfulness we know we have with God because of Christ in the middle of this terrible moment in which they find themselves. It's giving them traction in a slippery time. It's enabling them to avoid some of the spikes that could really cause them to fall. And the, the Apostle Paul knew this as well. The Apostle Paul, when he writes, is not some guy writing his letters up in some, I don't know, he's not sitting in some penthouse somewhere, relaxed, writing about how great Jesus is. That's not what he's doing. The Apostle Paul suffered greatly. I mean, he describes all of his sufferings. He goes to prison. He's flogged. He goes hungry. He's cold. He's tired. He gets uh, stones thrown at him, stoned. He's beaten. And yet this same Apostle Paul like you, me, like the, uh, the 40 soldiers out on the ice. It's all the same thing. They're all saying the same thing. So what does Paul say in Romans 8? He ends Romans 8 with a giant shout. He has this inner peace that enables him to face the worst of all enemies and the worst of all suffering because he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If, the God, if, God, ha, if I, God has made peace with me so that, that God is with me and God is for me and my, I have Jesus as my elder brother on my side, then he, he's kind of throwing out the question to everybody, if that's who's on my side, I got elder brother Jesus here with me, who would dare to stand against me? And how do you know that God is for you? Paul goes on and he says, because God did not spare his own son. If God didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, then surely he will carry us through the smaller things. If he'll do that, 
then surely you can take care of the smaller things. And so Paul goes on. He says, well, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? He's again throwing out the question. I dare anyone to bring a charge against me that God will somehow in the end reject me. I dare you to bring that charge. No one can do it, he says, because it's God who justifies. God has made peace with me. I didn't do anything. It's God who justified me and made peace with me. So who then can condemn? Because Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. And so Paul can speak candidly about how hard life is and even says we're like sheep led to the slaughter. That's not idealism. Because Christians literally were being led to the slaughter, and he's writing in the midst of all this. But what he's saying is, the enemy will not, we will not slip. We will not fall. We have traction. We can outmaneuver the attacks of the enemy. Why? Because we're wearing the gospel of peace. We got these sandals on. We know we have peace with God. And if we have peace with God, then we know that in the end... Nothing will prevail against us. And so that's why Paul ends with that great crescendo at the ends of Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble do it? How about hardship? Persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No, he says. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Not we hope to fight well. Not it'll be a tie. Not even that we're going to conquer. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he's just got utter conviction. He says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, the whole entire unseen realm, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So do you see the point? When your feet are fitted with the readiness that comes from knowing you have peace with God, and as you go deeper and deeper into that peace, as you remind yourself of that, if God is for me, nobody can be against me. If God has made peace with me, then who could possibly in the end destroy me? That then goes inside of you and gives you that peace of God that we all long for to make it through the trial. So put on the sandals of peace each day. Remind yourselves of the gospel of peace. Rejoice in the gospel that God has made peace with us through his son, Jesus Christ. And if God is for you, who could possibly be against you? Your elder brother stands always at your side. And in the end, he'll throw all our enemies <laughs> over the hedge. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Podcast.